Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastak. In 2002, literacy was at an all-time low in Egypt. Revolution was a few short years away, and Nadia Wasif opened an independent bookstore named Diwen in Cairo. With her sister Hind and her friend Nihal, Wasif built an oasis for lovers of the written word, whether Arabic, English, French, or German. Diwen now has seven locations and two mobile book trucks, having survived recessions, censorship, misogyny, and political turmoil, just to name a few things. Nadia Wasif joins the podcast to talk about the story of the store in her new book, Shelf Life, Chronicles of a Cairo Bookseller. Thank you so much for talking to me, Nadia. It's such a pleasure. Thank you for asking me. I'm very, very excited. I'm always happy to talk to another bibliophile, and uh, sounds like you did a great service for Cairo with opening the bookstore. So, I mean, what was the city, what was like Egyptian culture like at the moment that you and your co-founders decided to open Diwen? So, in many ways, it's like asking someone what American culture is like. I don't think there is one single you know, but the culture of, of Egypt that I knew growing up in, you know, an upper middle class uh, island of Zamalek in Cairo, there was a lot about to happen. You know, it was the start of a new century. It was the beginning of, you know, so much was happening at the time. And it was this happy coincidence of events. So, yes, you know, we always had a very lively literary scene, Egyptian film, Egyptian cinema. These were, I mean, it was one of the first industries in the region. Uh, we weren't far behind the UK and the US and, and so on at the start of the previous century, uh, when film was becoming quite the medium. And, uh, and I think, you know, the, the cultural scene was always quite alive. It had gone through some stagnation due to um, you know, political, social and economic factors, but a renaissance was about to happen. And I think lucky for us, we were in the right place at the right time. And um, one of the things that you don't anticipate, for instance, was that Diwan became um, a very positive and friendly space for women. And that's not something that we planned. In essence, I, you know, sometimes when you listen to yourself and you're true to yourself, you come up with something that has sincerity. And we created essentially a place where we wanted to hang out. Yeah, I mean, I was really surprised to learn that in like 2002, it was very difficult for a woman to find a place to pee. Well, look, I mean, public spaces generally, I think, are not very friendly to women. Because I think there's always a reminder that uh, it's not our place. We belong elsewhere, you know, in the home, in the private sphere. The public sphere is where public opinion is created. It's where jobs are. It's where men belong. And in many ways, you know, this was prevalent in, in colonial architecture. It was prevalent well before. And it's funny. I mean, I there was a chapter in the book that never made it into the book, but it was about my relationship with handbags because I've never been able to own a small handbag because I have the feeling that I need to take my world out with me when I go into the outside world. 
you know, and so I end up packing all sorts of stuff that I don't probably need. And then I look at, uh, you know, men with a tremendous amount of envy because, you know, they walk around with perhaps a wallet and a keychain. <laughs> yeah, no, I can definitely relate to that. You talked earlier about creating the world that you sort of want to inhabit. Can you just like walk us through the entrance of the first flagship store in Zamalek? What does it look like? What kind of world were you building? You know, what kind of bookstores were you pushing up against? I always say that we didn't come up with anything new. What what was new was that we brought the modern style bookstore that existed all over the world. We brought it to Cairo and we Egyptianized it. So if you walked in, there was this little sort of foyer and you climbed up five steps and there were these beautiful Art Deco um, black wrought iron railings. And if you went um, to the right, and it was funny because I read this article that said most people when they enter a bookstore turn right. And so we decided that we were going to, of course, do that, you know, because that's what people did. <laughs> so these random observations that somehow become governing facts. And so we, um, there was the cashier area and sort of stationary impulse buys. And then you went through a little alcove and then there was the bookstore. And it was, I, I still think it's stunning to this day. We had paid a lot of attention to the design of it. So we had, you know, mahogany bookcases, but the, the, the finishing was stainless steel. So it was this marriage of the old and the new. And it was divided into sort of half English, half Arabic. And in between, we had a section called Egypt Essentials that was really a mix of the four languages and they were united by the subject matter of Egypt, in a sense. And I remember at the time I realized, a few years into it, I realized that there are two types of books that sell. One was the stuff that matched international bestsellers that were happening all over the world that people were talking about. We were never a hardback market because we are an extremely price sensitive market. So if I ever got hardbacks, I would get them at a ridiculous reduced price and almost sell them at cost just to be able to say we have the latest stuff. Or I would wait for it to become a trade paperback or a paperback or whatever. So there were those which sort of matched us with the rest of the world. And then there was any title that had anything to do with Egypt. And that always sold. And I started to realize at one point that, you know, there was a sort of national pride um, mixed in with a bit of Egyptian chauvinism where we wanted to see ourselves, you know, just like we had been othered all our lives and past generations through the colonialist lens and through all sorts of, you know, lenses of occupation and, and, and. Well, this was our turn to see ourselves um, on a global stage in different languages. And I, that made me happy. I also wanted to see Egypt and I wanted to see it in every formulation possible. I was thrilled. I mean, what I think is interesting about Diwan, too, is just how much you had to sort of invent that was already there. So you brought the modern bookstore to Cairo and Egyptianized it. But you also had to, like, bring ISBNs mm. <laughs> to Cairo, too. And your sister, Hind, addressed a ton of the logistical problems of running a bookstore. Can you explain just, like, the ground level you were starting from in doing this logistically? Because... 
I think people who don't have it explained to them will probably be flummoxed. Like, what do you mean there were no ISBNs? Well, I mean, there were, but the relationship with them was very flexible. At the time, not every book published in the Arab world had an ISBN. And because ISBNs were given out by um, certain regulated institutions, whether national libraries or government institutions, so, you know, it was a way of withholding consent, in a sense, if someone wasn't happy with the book that was being published. So it wasn't always a done deal. And then sometimes, you know, uh, someone would borrow an ISBN from a previously published book. I mean, you're talking about a system that is kind of there, but not there. And this is where the problem lies, because you, nobody's bought into it fully, and it's used when necessary and discarded when not. And so, but when you think about it, if you exist in a world where you don't have this ISBN, which essentially is a tracker, if you're not able to track how much has sold, how much you need to reorder, basically you're flying blind. And, and Hind was the one who just sat down and said, okay, wait a minute. We are going to impose structure in this chaos. And we are going to bring it all to order because there is a bigger picture here. We need to start talking about bestsellers. And this was also a time when nobody talked about a bestseller anymore and nobody disclosed what was selling. And so in a sense, a big part of Diwan's credibility came from the fact that we weren't affiliated to anyone. We were very independent and we weren't sort of, you know, what our bestseller lists were exactly what was selling. And that's what gave us credibility, that people didn't doubt what we were saying. And that drove a lot of young authors. I remember speaking to um, someone who later on became quite a famous author. And he was telling me, when Diwan first opened, I used to walk in and look at your bestseller lists and dream that one day my name was going to be on there. And it was. It took him a good 10 years, but he got there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that speaks to how much has changed in Egypt since you opened in 2002. Um, I wanted to ask what it was like to run the bookstore, not just as a woman, but as a trio of women. You, your sister Hind, your friend Nihal. I mean, did you ever run into the borders and boundaries of, you know, a woman's world, as you put it? I think they, they, they sort of exist, yes, but I think there's also a very conscious choice that you make of how much you choose to acknowledge it and how much you choose to focus on the limitations. And I think the three of us, in very different ways, reach the same conclusion. Um, yes, these boundaries do exist, um, but we're just going to overlook them for now. And so each one of us, I mean, I think my way was probably the most aggressive and hostile way. Nihal's was probably the sweetest and Hin's was the quietest. But each one in her own way decided that, you know, actually, no, you, you could feel this way about me as a woman, but I'm going to ignore that and I'm going to soldier on. And we did that. And I mean, you know, there's an episode in the book where um, a guy who wants to franchise uh, Diwan comes and meets with us and he has a very long meeting and, you know, pours his guts out. And at one point I was almost sort of sold on his vision of this, you know, cultural regional takeover by Diwan. And then on the way out, you know, he stands up and I 
put my hand out to shake his hand and he looks at it and he gives me his elbow. And I'm wondering, you know, what's going on? And so that we have this moment of silence and then he says, you know, I don't shake hands with women. And I thought, wow. I paused for a moment and then I, I smiled and I said, hug, just as a way to just, I thought that was a funny response. He didn't think it was funny and he left. But I thought, you know, in a situation like that, let's take some humor into it because this is actually, this is a moment that belongs in the theater of the absurd. Because, you know, here's this guy coming to a business founded by women, run by women, and yet he has a problem shaking hands with women. Even as he wants to expand your vision to the rest of Egypt. Yes, yes. And no, regionally, not just Egypt. You know, but these things, you take them with a tremendous amount of humor and you ignore them. And if you do this enough times, it becomes irrelevant. If you get caught into the vortex of that, you go nowhere. I think it also speaks to the like the collision of different cultures that is happening in Cairo and in Egypt, not just now or when you opened the bookstore, but also for centuries as well. You have this section in the book where you talk about being dislocated from your own roots and becoming alienated from who you are. I think that's true for a lot of different cultures, but I think it's especially true you know, in a formerly colonized country, in a country that has seen so many successive waves of like suppression and censorship and erasure. You have a great line in there where uh, you talk about how the British invented Egyptology and then taught it to the Egyptians. I don't believe in denial so much as much as I would like to assimilate all these different facets and all these different waves of history. And yes, you know, the, the British might have invented Egyptology and taught it to us, but let's see what we can do with it. And let's see what we can assimilate. I mean, I think one of the most brilliant things in India is taking English as one of the national languages. Yes. What else are you going to do? You know, you have populations, you know, that have fallen through the cracks between all sorts of different dialects and languages. So what do you do? You know, do you sort of like walk wobbling between one language and another? Or do you just say, you know what, all of it's mine? Well, what have Egyptians done with Egyptology or various other inheritances? Well, look, I think the problem that we're facing now is one of packaging or, tra- or, or again, accessibility. Um, I think that, you know, we, we've got all these museums and we've got all, but, but again, I see that there is a dislocation, you know, that somehow, you know, either the ancient Egyptians belong to this far away sort of glorious past that we like to refer to, but in actual fact, I don't know how much of it, or we're conscious of how much of it infiltrates into our daily lives now. And I think that's one of the roles of books of history, of literature, there sort of needs to be some kind of healing. I personally think that books and bookstores heal us. I mean, that's one of the things, you know, in an age of um, ailments, we're constantly looking for the thing that's going to make us feel better or that's going to improve our efficiency or make us better people or whatever. And I think, you know, it's it's old. I mean, you had a um, a podcast that I listened to a long time ago, about self-help, you, you went back to the ancient Greeks, 
Whereas when I was doing the research for this book, because one of my pet peeves is self-help books. <laughs> and when I was doing the, the, the proper research, and I have to say, I, I'm, I'm, I, I deny this, but I do now read them a lot more. But they used to really annoy me, especially because they sold in ridiculous amounts. And I just never understood the thrill, the appeal. And I also don't like the bastardization of the genre. But um, the very, very first self-help books were actually ancient Egyptian, and it was the teachings of Tahotep, well preceding anything from the ancient Greeks, from um, the Stoics, the Epicureans, Lucretius Deririum Natura, all of this, well, well before it, you had the sayings or the teachings of Tahotep, who was a vizier for one of the um, pharaohs, and I'm not even going to try and pronounce the guy's name, but he was uh, retiring and he wrote this manual to his son because, you know, nepotism is, is, an, is an old gig. So he wrote it to his son explaining to him, you know, these are the secrets to a good life and these are my ingredients for you to succeed in the job that you're taking. And, and basically he had squared it away with the pharaoh that his son was going to inherit his position. And it was on the understanding that he would impart, you know, the secrets of this good life to him. And the genre started there. And there are loads of them. This is something that it annoys me that we are not familiar with it. As Egyptians, we're dislocated from it. I, I always have these conversations, you know, every time I, I say anything critical of my culture, my country, uh, one of my family members invariably will say, but we are the descendants of the ancient Egyptians. And I'm always like, yes, I, that's lovely. Yes. But what have we done? You know, or, or how much of their, uh, glory or wisdom have we carried on? You know, and, and this is a conversation that we constantly have. You know, every time there's a new war or a new era or, you know, there's a rewriting of reality, of history. Well, I think a huge part of that dislocation, too, is linguistic. The bookstore does stock English, Arabic, French, and German, and that's not an accident. You know, all of those languages are present in Cairo and Egypt more broadly. Um, there is definitely a separation in terms of, you know, who is buying English books, who is reading English books, who has yes. access to those. There is. So when my parents went to school, my father went to an Egyptian government school, where he learned terrific Arabic. He mastered the language throughout his entire life. He was somebody who really appreciated the beauty and the lyricism of the language. Two generations later, because my father was much older, I mean, he had us very late in his life. Um, my sister and I, at this point, we're talking about the 70s, 80s in Egypt. The best schools to go to are not the government schools anymore because there's been a collapse in, you know, got free government education. So it is now the international language schools, which are either, you know, money-making ventures, uh, the relics of a colonial or missionary or, or uh, development, depending on, you know, the, the decade you're talking about. So my sister and I went to a British school and it was very funny. I mean, I always refer back to the idea that it was the British International School in Cairo 
But I never felt that we were in Cairo. I felt that I was in England. At the time, we weren't allowed to speak Arabic on school premises. I mean, that changed with the passage of time, and then they started teaching Arabic and, and, and. But when we were there in the 80s, we weren't taught Arabic, and we weren't allowed to speak in Arabic, because we were there to learn English. Uh, <laughs> we celebrated Guy Fawkes Day. There were charity garden fates. I mean, this was a very English thing. And just, if I can just pause here to say that Arabic itself, when you deal with it as a language, you're dealing with a, a split personality. Because on the one hand, you have classical Arabic, Fusha, which is a beautiful language and quite complicated. And I think it's only in some Gulf states where the classical Arabic is actually sort of spoken in. In Egyptian Arabic, you speak in Ammiya, and Ammiya is colloquial. And that has nothing to do with the classical. You write in classical, so when you write formal business letters, you write in classical. But when you speak to people, you speak in colloquial. And that in itself is problematic. And that has sort of altered the trajectory of literature, of accessibility. And so there's a shift in generations where You know, when I sit and hear my parents wax lyrical on the beauty of the language, I don't hear that in later generations because the attitude changed. It's a class and a socioeconomic issue. You know, government schools that teach Arabic are free. International language schools that will teach you Arabic and some English and so on are quite expensive. Not everyone can afford it. And then what ends up happening is that you get people who can afford it, who um, whose parents and families send them to foreign language schools in Egypt, but they emerge without a proper grasp of Arabic. And then that becomes problematic because you become linguistically orphaned in your mother tongue. But I think, for instance, one of the things that has been very positive in the last 20 years has been the fact that a lot of young writers in Arabic have decided to appropriate colloquial Arabic and they will write novels in colloquial Arabic. I mean, you know, 50 years ago, that was unheard of. You wouldn't do that. It's a shame that perhaps our grasp of the pure Arabic language is not fantastic. But again, in assimilating colloquial Arabic, Um, I think the accessibility factor is much stronger now, and we need that. At the end of the day, my end game is to have more people engaged with books and bookstore and literature. That's what I care about. How they go about it, I don't really care. You know, I used to tell my daughters, I still tell them, I don't care what you read, just read. You want to read cartoons, go for it. Comics, I, honestly, I just want you to get the habit of holding a book in your hand. So how do you reckon with that as someone who's stocking a bookstore in four languages? How do you see all of the accessibility problems, see the changing mores and fill a bookstore? But but you do because, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm going to create a lovely space for you where you're going to come and there's going to be nice music and it's going to be piping hot outside, but I'm going to have a wonderfully air-conditioned space and you're going to have a lovely cup of coffee or a soft drink, or whatever you want, and you're going to eat nice food, and you're going to listen to nice music, and you're going to be exposed to wonderful service. And if I can stick a book in your hands, I'm going to be so thrilled. 
I'm not going to be highbrow about this and I'm not going to be uptight about this. I want this to be a fun and pleasant experience, you know. And so at a time when, you know, people take literature very seriously and the Arabic language and, 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 and I was like, no, no, no. And I'm going to have fabulous bags with lovely designs on them. And, and I'm going to make this fun and unintimidating for you because I want you here and I want you to be happy and I want you to come back. We have links in the show notes to Nadia Wasef's new book, Shelf Life, Chronicles of a Cairo Bookseller, as well as some recommendations for Egyptian reading and cinema. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. <laughs>